Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. I use she or they pronouns. And this week, I'm talking with Liza Kurtz, who is a PhD candidate in disaster studies, who studies essentially the impact, well, the impact of disaster uh, upon society. And we, we talk about a lot of stuff. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, but primarily we're talking about the ways in which people do and don't respond to disaster and basically are trying to kind of bust the myth of that everyone runs around and, you know, murders each other or whatever. And also we get to talk about elite panic, which is the idea that basically the people who are invested in the system are the ones who panic during uh, times of extraordinary crisis. This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts, and here's a jingle from another podcast on the network. Da-da-da-da. Kite Line is a weekly 30-minute radio program focusing on issues in the prison system. You'll hear news along with stories from prisoners and former prisoners as well as their loved ones. You'll learn what prison is, how it functions, and how it impacts all of us. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. You can hear us on the Channel Zero Network and find out more at kitelineradio.noblogs.org. Okay, if you could introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and then also just kind of like what you do, like what it, you know, why did I bring you on this show? Sure thing. That sounds great. So my name is Liza Kurtz. I am a PhD candidate at Arizona State University. I use the pronouns she and her. And my um, research really focuses on specifically heat and power outages in the Southwest. That's what my dissertation will be about. But in general, I am grounded in disaster sociology as a discipline, looking at it from sort of a a conflict theory lens, which is a fancy way of saying I look at class struggle and how antecedent conditions of disaster make people vulnerable to what we perceive as these like natural events that cause great harm. Okay. Uh, What does that mean? That last part. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. So basically, uh, I think we have a tendency and certainly there's a tendency in popular culture and in the media to perceive any kind of disaster as um, the term you'll hear hear used in legal circles and sometimes in in the press is an act of God, right? Mm -hmm. Like something no one could have predicted that just happens, that's nobody's fault, and it causes great suffering, but that suffering often isn't really drilled down on to see why did this happen? And so what disaster sociology and disaster studies try to do really is pick that apart and really um, trouble the implication that these things are just natural and just happen because they don't. And so if you look at who suffers most from disasters, if you look at why disasters happen at all, really all they are are these natural events make a lens um, that that focuses and amplifies what's already going on in society. So if you have inequality, you have injustice, disaster brings all of that to the fore. Um, But there's a temptation to think of it as coming out of nowhere, when in reality, we create the conditions that make suffering happen during a disaster. So Katrina is a great example of this. You can say, oh, it was, you know, a hundred year storm. Nobody could have predicted a hurricane that large. And there's some element of truth to that, but there's more elements of truth to how we built the city of New Orleans reflects like the racial injustice of its history and the poverty that we've allowed to flourish there. And all of that can get hidden behind the idea that this storm just happened. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting because one of the things that I focus on when I when I pay attention to disasters is actually the the almost the inverse consideration as far as goes as far as class not in terms of like clearly people who are uh, oppressed in society along numerous axes are far more likely to to suffer during disasters but I guess I like I put a lot of my energy into thinking about how people come together during disasters and the main thing that I've been learning slowly and I kind of want to talk to you about is this idea that like everyone except the elite 
come together and like work on shit together <laughs> during disasters is that oh man is that true is that like that's my conception right that is certainly um yeah that's pretty spot on in a lot of cases yeah and you're right certainly that people who suffer disproportionately during disasters the folks who are vulnerable who take the hardest hit whether that's health or money or um, property damage that doesn't make them not incredible at self-organizing and incredible at building community and responding to those events it just makes they means they take a disproportionate amount of damage um Mm -hmm. and yeah you're you're super right in the sense that we see so to really talk about this, I'm going to have to back up. And maybe this isn't that interesting, but I hope it is. I'm not sure if you know anything about the history of disaster studies. I do not. Okay. So a lot of disaster studies came out of World War II, like civil defense ideas. The idea that there might be um, air attacks or even a land invasion of the United States by Axis forces or right afterward and during the Cold War by Russia. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. And so there was this, oh yeah, of course, like it, it all goes back to the Cold War if you look hard <laughs> enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there was this enormous um, interest in what the civilian response would be if something like that happened and how we could encourage regular civilians to take the stress off of, res- of military forces that might be forced to respond by becoming self-reliant. So that's where you see this like, advertising in glossy magazines about like build your own fallout shelter kind of thing all the stuff that you see in video games now all that was super real during the cold war and uh before that it was it was air raid shelters during world war ii and it was really to take the pressure off of military and humanitarian forces who might be forced to respond the idea was you didn't want to be part of the problem and so there was this massive wartime militaristic interest in what civilian populations would do and how we could train them to be self-sufficient. And so part of that was a ton of interest in and research into that was funded by the military in a lot of cases into how people would behave if something went really, really wrong. Like, would they panic? Would there be mass chaos? Would they turn on each other? And The perception that still lingers to this day in the media, if you see any bad disaster movies, and they're pretty much all bad, although (laughs) some of them are bad and fun and some are just bad. (laughs) Um, If it's got the rock in it, I'm there and I don't care how bad it is. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, Uh, that's just natural. Yeah. So the perception and the expectation was that civilian populations would panic. That if there was an air raid or a bombing or something went wrong, there would be this mass panic. And then as you get researchers starting to look into this, what they find actually is that people are usually pretty good at self-organizing in response to an immediate crisis. And so even though the perception is still in the media that if anything goes wrong, it will be immediately a walking dead kind of scenario, um, as one of my interviewees put it recently. (laughs) That's not really true, especially not among like middle class and lower class communities that live side by side with each other all the time. Uh, and we'll go into elite panic a little bit more. So that's where this, there started to be the seed of dispelling the myth of disaster panic was then. Um, and that, that research happened in the 70s and the 80s and the late 60s a little bit. And that has since been borne out by most of the available data that people are really good at self-rescuing that the real first responder is your neighbor most of the time or a family member and that folks are pretty good at at making the best of terrible terrible situations and making life easier for each other now where you see that start to fall apart is in elite panic which is when affluent communities or communities that tend to be um racial enclaves like all white suburbs and things like that uh get that fear of the other bite because their perception is that as soon as anything breaks bad it's going to be a walking dead scenario and everyone is going to come for their stuff and i don't know what it goes on in their head it seems like a very um like almost a wild west like take your wives and children kind of mentality Yeah, which is really, I mean, the more you unpack that and really think about it, the more fucked up it gets. Um, And so the elite panic can be super dangerous. I mean, on some level, 
I might be coming for their stuff. Yeah, well, fair. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I might come for their stuff. I mean, you know, if they have too much of it and they're not sharing. I mean, <laughs> not to tie into their own fears. It's just, you know, the billionaires of this world. Like, No, that's real. I've never confirmed this, but there's uh, anecdotal reports in the Balkan Wars of people who stockpiled um, supplies because they sort of saw things going poorly, becoming extreme social pariahs and sometimes even the targets of violence because of their their hoarding tendencies stockpiling goods in advance and and keeping other people from getting them so apparently that was like a, a severe social crime at the time although i've never confirmed that in the literature i've just heard that anecdotally and it's it's easy to understand why like if you're taking it and not sharing then i can certainly see something similar happening here i mean i often tell preppers when people ask about preppers in my work i tell them Preppers are going to die alone in a bunker full of goods because it's great you have all that stuff, but there isn't much you can really do with it if you don't have the social connections to make social life happen. I think prepping in particular is a particular, um, a particularly elite and American form of the myth of individualism taken to the most dramatic extreme. Well, it's interesting though because it if it comes from this idea of us being asked to self-rescue, us being asked to be resilient, um, you know, I, and I know maybe it's like, I'm always like trying to like salvage what I can out of, out of prepping because it, in my mind, yeah, like, like the, the bunker mentality, which I talk shit on in probably every single episode, um, because I basically find people who are like functionally know a lot about prepping, but don't call themselves preppers for a lot of good reasons. Um, the the bunker mentality is obviously just going to get you killed, whether it's by disease or, you know, there's like, but, but it's like interesting when this idea of like being resilient, being prepared rather than being like a prepper, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to draw the distinction here between what I would probably call if I, in academic speak, like the practice of prepping, which is is the knowledge and the goods and knowing how to do basic survival tasks if needed, and sort of the classic American dominant culture of prepping, which is that hyper-masculinized, hyper-muscular Christianity, like, it's just going to be me and my family and my guns and a bunker full of food kind of thing. So when I talk about prepping um, in a derogatory way, I definitely mean the culture and not the practice. Um, yeah, no, I think I have a really complicated relationship with the idea of resilience. Because on the one hand, I think resilience can be used to recognize how incredible some communities are at self-organizing and taking care of themselves in the face, not just of disaster, but of tremendously difficult conditions like it is truly astonishing what people can do to find ways to survive and here especially we see that a lot in in phoenix um air conditioning which is where i am air conditioning is really not a luxury like it is in many other places it is 110 percent a survival skill or a survival tool um because it is not uncommon for summers to be 115 here which is if you can't cool off that can be extremely de detrimental to health and so the people who have to live without air conditioning in my work um, have a tremendously creative number of strategies now should they have to use them no of course not they should they should be able to have access to air conditioning for equity and health reasons but that doesn't make the things that they do any less creative or impressive in doing so and what's interesting to me is that sometimes we talk about prepping and, and the failure of systems or natural hazards um, can sometimes invert the relationship of who is most, how would I put this, of who is like doing the best in the <laughs> sense that in my work in Phoenix, people who live without air conditioning are far more prepared for blackouts. So they may be more at risk in the everyday scenario as opposed to having air conditioning. But if the city's grid failed, they already have the culture and practice of staying cool without access to air conditioning down in a way that somebody who, like me, honestly, who can who can afford air conditioning and uses it all the time really doesn't. 
just as a, a tangent that I'm curious about, what do people do without AC in severe, like in severe heat? Like what, what do you recommend to people in power outages in the Southwest? Oh boy. Well, yeah, that's a complicated question, but we've been very fortunate here in Phoenix to never have a truly widespread power outage. Um, And so generally when there are smaller scale outages here, it's possible to seek indoor cooled shelter in another part of the city. Um, But my dissertation focuses on asking residents what they would do during a three-day power outage where the entire metro area does not have power. And I I think I definitely ruined some people's days asking them that because it's one of those (laughs) things that's uncomfortable to consider for sure. But people who don't have power um, really talk about very, very smart ways. And what's especially interesting is they tap into knowledge that was present prior to the city having electricity. So these really old practices of things like hanging wet blankets over doorways so that you're humidifying the air that comes into your house for greater evapotranspiration is one of them. Um, Fairly straightforward things that most of us might think of, like wearing lighter colored clothing or staying out of the sun. Um, But then also some really amazing stuff like knowing, you know, knowing which structures in the town are adobe and were built prior to air conditioning and are designed to stay cool. So if you're in a modern house in Phoenix now and you don't have AC, you're, the temperature inside the house will rise very quickly. But many adobe structures were built prior to air conditioning or even like um, swamp cooling, which is another thing we use here, which is basically a, a giant humidifier, um, prior to those being accessible. And so adobe structures will stay cool significantly better than modern buildings yeah i I like then you also have the problem of how dry it is because yeah the thing that uh, immediately strikes me is evaporative cooling like i would be like oh can you like you know i don't know build like water catchment on the roof that holds water on the roof so it evaporates instead of transferring heat or whatever you know i I don't know but that's dependent on a very different ecosystem and also just some bullshit that i made up right now (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, that's how uh, all survival strategies started, right? Like, hey, I wonder if this works. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, water is a huge, a huge cooling strategy here. And it's funny because I'm originally from Tennessee and I literally, until I moved here, did not know it was possible to buy humidifiers. I'd never seen anything but dehumidifiers. <laughs> um, and so when I got here, I was like, why would you want to put water in your house? And then my first summer, I was like, oh, I get it. Um Yeah, water is hugely important in everyone's cooling strategies here. And that's another issue with blackouts in particular, because certainly if you go and ask many people who are responsible for critical infrastructure systems, they will tell you that power outages will not cause water treatment and pressure issues. But if you look at the history of citywide blackouts in the United States, there's almost always somebody who is having to cope without household potable water at the time. And so it seems like these these systems are not as resilient as we would like in terms of critical infrastructure. And here, if you don't have access to household water, a huge number of your cooling strategies, like, you know, just slam dunking yourself in a cold bath if you need to, suddenly become less tenable. And that can be really, really a problem. Yeah. Let's talk about I kind of accidentally derailed you or intentionally derailed you while you were talking about elite panic, but I'm I'm really interested in that because I'm really interested in this idea. Like again, the, the working understanding that I've had just from my, my layman's perspective or whatever is that during disasters overall people like essentially self-organize, not in a utopian way inherently, but often in a way that people kind of miss when things go back to normal. But then when everything gets really fucked up seems like when the existing power, the previous power structures uh, attempt to reassert themselves. That's like been my observational understanding of like talking to a lot of people involved in uh, disaster relief and things like that. But it seems like that ties into elite panic, this idea that people who are actually invested in the previous power relations and especially property relations, um, are maybe the ones who can't handle the idea of everyone suddenly taking care of each (laughs) other and shit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's spot on. And um, I think you really see this 
sort of that um what you might almost call it like a pivot point or an inflection point where things could turn one way or the other in the immediate aftermath of a disaster and you really see that reflected in the practice of disaster capitalism uh and so I think sometimes we overlook because it seems so inevitable that disasters have poor outcomes, and they do for many people. Disasters can also be an opportunity to say, hey, business as usual is what got us to this outcome. How can we do things differently? Um, Because there's sort of a shock to the system, whether the system is you as a, a resident or the household or the town or the county or the state, like they're, they're really, they're a shock point. And so they provide an opportunity to stop and say like, okay, business as usual, the everyday practice of how we run things got us here. How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And if you really start engaging with how does this not happen again, that means transforming those everyday practices that got you there. So I think you're spot on with that idea that, elites and and people on the top who have an interest in preserving the status quo see the inflection point and sort of grab it and pull as hard as they can in the other direction. And so it's not just that there's, I think, uh, a desire to go back to the way things were and preserve the power structure and the property relationships and everything else of, of the place before the disaster happened in in a lot of cases they're perceived as opportunities yeah. which is extremely messed up and um and amoral but it's true that really these things are seen as here is a great great opportunity to restructure things towards a more capitalist um a more stratified a less just system and one of the things that i think you can see right now with that is because COVID closed public school systems, which is a good thing, like kids don't need to be spreading COVID, like I'm, I'm broadly supportive of the public health need to close school systems, it provided this vacuum for all these alternatives and these think pieces to crop up, et cetera, and these companies to start pitching like, well, do we really need public schooling anyway? Oh, shit. Uh-huh. Can this be replaced by a different system that's more private? that's more controlled by capital, that's less interested in the public good, that is more about profit. And that's a classic, classic example example of what's called disaster capitalism, where something goes wrong and suddenly it becomes an opportunity for someone somewhere to restructure things so they can make more money. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, all that shit, like with COVID now everyone buys everything online. I mean, mm-hmm. I buy everything online. I'm terrified of COVID and I work from home. So, you know, um, and then you're like, I don't know, just, just watching society restructure itself to buy everything online and online is kind of, it. I don't know whether it's naturally or it's designed that way by evil people, but like overall the internet is so good at decentralizing things. And yet in terms of like commerce, it seems like it's really good at centralizing it's like really good at having the everything store, you know? It, yeah. And I, I don't know enough about about the architecture of the internet and economics therein to say like if that's by design or just a function of the way it works. But yes, it does seem to be seems to be so good at creating monopolies in that way. Um, when you're talking about Adobe houses, you know, and how, oh, okay, the old houses are actually built of Adobe or whatever, you know, it just, it, it really strikes me about uh, how completely arrogant the colonial and industrial system is in that it's like, <laughs> well, whatever works in New England is what should work in Arizona. And it, it's so baffling to me, you know, because it's like, well, there's so obviously like a steep pitched roof exists that way to shed snow, you know? And then people are like, Oh, we'll just put these steep gables everywhere. And like, right. It just, I mean, I say that as someone who lives in an A-frame somewhere where there's no snow, well, not no snow, but not much snow. But in my defense, I actually just built it that way because it's the cheapest and most structurally sound for way for someone who doesn't know how to build a house to build a house is have fewer walls. Or roof. <laughs> um, I don't know. It just, it, it depresses me to think about yeah no i this, think this this uh the centralizing urge go ahead oh i just i think you're so right and i think it's it's um maybe there is something to the idea that accelerated 
consolidationist capitalism makes everything sort of a a bland universalism in much the way that Amazon is a bland universalism because I do think one of the things that we've really lost that is super helpful in the practice of preparing for disaster is um, local knowledge. Just localization in general is is mm-hmm. such a huge thing, whether it's knowing where in your landscape the water is or knowing what kind of house does best without AC. And certainly here in Phoenix, I I have been known to just like scream a little bit in my car <laughs> driving around because there is a massive fad for pulling out old, beautiful 50s ranch homes and putting in, I've heard them referred to as McModerns, mm-hmm. so houses that take up the entire lot um, that look, like you say, very much New England-y. Um, they're often two stories, which is dumb in the desert. They have no green buffer around them at all to help cool anything. Um, they're made of like the cheapest possible like wood and sheetrock and very little insulation, um, very large windows that face, you know, like east and west often. And so you just look at these buildings that are literally the worst possible choice for this environment, and they are building them constantly. And it really, like, it is tremendously painful (laughs) to see in these beautiful neighborhoods that um, were originally orange groves, And so when people started building houses there, they would leave the orange trees around their houses. And so there was significant shade and uh, food in your front yard. And then they will just rip them all out and replace them with these. And what really gets me, and this is like such a classic example of um, a thing people think they're doing for a good reason that is actually worse, is many of them have astroturf lawns, (laughs) which I understand from the perspective of not wanting to use water or like your grass always being green but you've replaced like not that i support suburban lawns but you've replaced something that is at least a plant even if it's a (laughs) monoculture with plastic and sure it doesn't use water but the thing that gets me the most is my colleagues study surface temperature and astroturf is the worst thing you could put down for heat yeah okay like it's worse you might as well have paved your yard yeah and it's also carcinogenic oh god and so there's this like pseudo greenwashing that's actually just absolutely the worst thing you could do for everyone involved on these horrible mcmoderns that are the worst thing you could build for the desert and we have and i think it really all just comes from a desire for i want to live in a place that looks like every other place Mm mm-hmm and we've come so far from like the localized knowledge of knowing Adobe is better and Xeriscaping is better and all of that. Xeriscaping? Oh, sorry. Uh, X-E-R-I. Xeriscaping is desert landscaping. So it's the practice of planting your yard uh, in a way that is congruous with like the natural environment of the Sonoran Desert that we're in here. Mm. Yeah, it it's this arrogance that I almost can't handle because it's like if you build your life around i assume that i will always have a gas line and a power line and you know i will always just have as much electricity as i could possibly want you know it's like now that i i live somewhere where i generate my own electricity i mean a solar panel generates the electricity for me um (laughs) it which isn't you know carbon neutral either you know but i'm i'm so aware of like how incredibly not necessarily wasteful ac is because you kind of need it in a lot of circumstances so it's not a waste but it's it's not exactly this like low power device you know and i don't know just the things that we take for granted it it, it confuses me sometimes for sure and uh you shouldn't have said solar panel because in my head it was just you biking furiously on like a <laughs> a bike generator to keep the computer on while we do this so you could have had me there <laughs> Uh, no, absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, and AC is one of those things where, uh, I don't know, it's almost like um, putting a, a Band-Aid on a bullet wound here a little mm-hmm. bit in the sense that I'm not going to argue that centralized air conditioning is the single most effective intervention for saving people from dying 
from heat, which is a huge problem here. About 500 people in the state died last year from heat related causes last year, which is not an insignificant number. And actually, extreme heat kills more people in the United States than any other um, weather-related hazards. So, you know, when you worry about hurricanes or tornadoes or things like that, it's, it's really heat that's the major the major killer of people. Um, and so I would never say, like, don't have central AC for ecological reasons, because it is a huge and immediate public health intervention that saves lives. But also, it doesn't solve this fundamental problem, which is part of the reason we need AC so badly, is we've built the city in... Um, in a really stupid sort of 70s thinking kind of way, which is there's tons of uncovered pavement and really tall buildings that, you know, like the urban heat island here is very, very real. It doesn't cool off overnight. And so the need for AC is great, but the need to think beyond AC and think about how do we look into the future and actually reduce the need for this like immediate public health triage of just get in a cool environment so you don't die right away well okay and so the the need to fundamentally restructure huge parts of our society seems very apparent and increasingly apparent to more and more people especially as you know climate change barrels down on everyone even if you were willing to ignore all of the systemic oppression Mm -hmm. that that people face and i think sometimes and I know I do this and I wonder whether you talk about how capitalists look at disaster as opportunity and that's a problem. And I'm like, so do revolutionists mm-hmm. and so do people who want society to be fundamentally different because you have this some level of like wiping the slate clean and there's this a certain amount of opportunity to restructure society. And it seems like very often capitalism is better at this than us, but there are also these like you know, like like watching mutual aid networks pop up all over at least the United States last year in a way that like, and I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't want COVID to have happened, right? Um, but when people look at that and say, well, we actually need to learn how to take care of each other and build these like networks by which to take care of each other. To me, that's the, um, that's the beauty of it. But then it's, I, I, now I wonder whether I'm doing the same kind of ambulance chasing that, um, that capitalists are do i let myself (laughs) off the hook just because i think what i'm doing is good and what they're doing is bad right like they they think the opposite but i'm right so (laughs) well yeah i i mean and i don't think it is if it's ambulance chasing you're only chasing the ambulance to help stop the bleeding as opposed to charge the patient so i think that there's a a fundamental value difference (laughs) there um, and so, yeah, no, you're you're absolutely correct in the sense that there are opportunities and there are opportunities whether we want them to be or not. So we might as well seize them. But I think part of the problem is about how, and not just in media, but even to each other, how we storytell around disasters as like, it's very hard to hold the tension in your mind. Like with COVID, it's very hard to hold the tension in your mind between so many people, particularly people of color and otherwise vulnerable folks, have paid this horrible price for our inability to cope with an epidemic. And at the same time, this sort of, and that's, there's nothing good about that. That is massively negative. And at the same time, we are being presented presented with this opportunity that could allow us to build something better, like these mutual aid networks that you mentioned. But it, it feels, it's very hard to talk about in a way that feels respectful and honorable to say like, this is an opportunity for something better to be born out of the ashes of this enormous tragedy. And so I think it's easy for those conversations to get derailed one, because of how we talk about disasters as um, you know, like always negative with the panic and everything like that. The, the mythology around disasters makes it hard. And then two, the difficulty of respectfully talking about this. But I would certainly argue that if if we want, especially, and I'll use COVID as the example here, if we want to mm-hmm. honor the people who died unjustly of COVID, there is no better way to do so than taking this opportunity and seizing it to make a system and a world where that won't happen again. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. And, and I wonder, you know, it's like, 
I mean, what we should be trying to do, and, and it's what people do try to do, it's just the, the systems of power we're up against are, are uh, rather good at what they do of maintaining their power, is, is do this <laughs> anyway. You know, it's like there's been mutual aid networks for well, ever, obviously, just assigning a word to it in the 19th century or whatever. But, um, you know, we, we need to we need to restructure things anyway. And and if you were to take Phoenix as an example, it's like, I mean, I, I kind of, I have to admit, I, I look at Phoenix as like this just grand arrogance in the desert that um, like probably shouldn't be there. <laughs> and, and I know that that's not fair to the actual individual people who live there, you know? Um, and so I, I don't want to be like, get rid of Phoenix or whatever, right? But like, but instead it's like, well, probably the slow hard work of restructuring needs to happen anyway. Like the slow hard work of figuring out how to build, rebuild the city in such a way that it isn't just like waiting for disaster. I don't know. Oh yeah. I think you've touched on something um, there that I always try and challenge people with when they talk about Phoenix as a, a grand experiment in inevitable failure, building, um, I think at this point, the fifth largest city in the United States, um, or the fifth, fifth largest metro area, actually, um, in the desert, which is, I don't necessarily disagree that that is not an immediately intuitively good idea. <laughs> um, but now that it's here, I like to think of Phoenix as the perfect test bed and sandbox because it's the hottest large metro area in the United States. And if we can turn this thing around and we can make Phoenix mm -hmm. in the next 30 years cooler and more livable and more just and more sustainable, then it can be done anywhere. We're the edge case. Um, and so this is the perfect place to find those solutions and then take the the lessons that lessons learned and the things that worked and export them to less extreme environments where they might be useful. So in that sense, even a little victory in Phoenix might be a big victory in somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. So, so to go back to disaster studies, we've, we've, you've talked about how the mainstream, like certainly the media conception of disaster is, you know, the walking dead scenario is the everyone running around, like, you know, everyone for themselves scenario. And, mm -hmm. but but disaster studies, it seems like even though it came from this, you know, kind of shitty background, it seems like have the people who study disaster academically, have they kind of known this entire time that's bullshit? <laughs> and if so, why isn't that getting out? Like, why aren't more people aware of the fact that everything we know about how people respond to disaster is wrong? That is a great, great question. And I'm not sure I have like a perfect answer for you, but I can, I can certainly offer some thoughts. Um, so yes, you're right that disaster studies, even though it came out of this very militarized um, and military funded background, really starting with uh, a wonderful scholar named E.L. Corintelli, who was active uh, in the 60s through the 90s, really started questioning those views and pushing on this, this idea of panic and other things like that. Um, and so disaster studies in general as a field, not all of it, but for a long time has been very justice oriented in its approach. So if you, if you've heard the words social vulnerability, a lot of that is coming out of disaster studies. If you've heard the words, you know, or heard talking about the concept of resilience as applied from the top down being a way of almost victim blaming, which, um, certainly it can be, you know, like, why aren't you? It's a repackaging sometimes of the idea of like, why aren't you self-reliant? Why are you making us help you kind of thing? Uh, all of that is really coming out of disaster studies. The problem is, unfortunately, that you almost have two separate silos of disaster studies because disaster scholars are not the people who respond to disaster. Um, they're not the people preparing for it. They're not the people deciding what mitigates it. Those people are part of what I would broadly call sort of the emergency management class, at least here in the United States they are. And many of them are emergency managers, but that also includes things like um, 
crisis communications and information officers or public information officers and um, fire chiefs and firefighters and EMS first responders, and in many cases, public health officials as well. And that is a professional class that has existed for a long time. And this is slowly starting to change that has really stayed rooted in that military idea. So it's it's not directly connected to the military, although sometimes it is, um, but it's a militarized service. It's very about hierarchy. So I was a firefighter. I was a volunteer firefighter in Tennessee for just about two years. Uh, so you have a commanding officer. You know, it's structured like the military, basically. Uh, in a lot of cases, it works very closely with law enforcement and the military like National Guard. For instance, here in Arizona, I think it's very indicative that our agency is DEMA, which is the Department of Emergency and Military Affairs. Mm. And how you became an emergency manager or a fire chief or someone who is really directly involved in the world of preparing for and responding to disasters was you started as um, f- like a frontline law enforcement, frontline fireman, frontline, um, and I say men because they, they generally are, although that's starting to change too. Uh, and you worked for 20 years and eventually you worked your way up the chain, much like the military, to becoming someone who was making all of these strategic decisions, etc. And so disaster studies has a very hard time talking across the gap to practitioners Mm -hmm. and it's a little um disheartening sometimes how white and male disaster practitioners still tend to be and how um stuck in a particularly militaristic frame of mind and that's something that's really been troubling me lately and something i've talked about colleagues with because um uh i don't know if i've said this publicly yet but i've certainly said it to colleagues as a, a queer woman with a trans partner who is deeply interested in racial and social justice, even though my degree sets me up for it, I don't feel like at this point I can in good conscience take a standard emergency management job. Yeah, It's too wrapped up with law enforcement and militaristic ideas of what disaster response means and who deserves what and why people do things and where aid goes. And it's just, and you know, like FEMA is still housed in the department of Homeland security, which is a whole other issue that we could talk about for another hour. Um, Which really no one who studies disasters is, or very few people really support that model. It offers tremendous problems. Um, and so you have this gap. And so that's part of the reason these things still exist is the practice of emergency management really looks pretty similar to the 1950s in some ways. And the study of disaster is this much more radical, much more diverse thing. Okay, so hear me out. If already in terms of disaster management, you have the the militaristic system, the the official governmental system. And then you have these like incredibly complex and interesting uh, disaster relief organizations, especially the, like the non-hierarchical, the mutual aid focused ones. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So you all should just get up with those people. And basically like, I don't know. I get really excited about this. Like, okay. So like, like create a counter structure, right? Like, and because that already is starting (laughs) to exist increasingly. And so, I don't know. I think it'd be cool if y'all if y'all got up with them, and maybe you all already do. Um, yeah, one of the okay. So like like thinking about the the terrible ways that people manage disaster, like the the governments manage disaster, or whatever. I I'm curious if you know of this. I've been hearing this phrase from people I know who do uh, disaster relief, especially coming from anarchist spaces, that there is a specific written thing that the priority of the government in disasters above all else, including the actual rule of law, like the application of laws, is COG, is continuance of governance. Basically, like, this is the justification for, like, shooting looters and things like that, because it's it's absolutely mm. illegal to shoot looters, right? Like, by the existing right. structure. But the, the reassertion of control as, like, the absolute baseline priority... Um, does that does that hold up with your understanding? I know it's now in a different silo than your silo, but yeah. So I I would be surprised if that is specifically written down anywhere in that way. 
certainly continuity of operations, as it's called, coop plans and continuity of governance uh, cog plans exist. Um, and they they play a very important role in how, on paper, we prepare for disaster as like large large government institutions prepare for disaster. Um, it is certainly not supposed to be held above rule of law. Now, is it? Probably quite a bit. Um, and things like shooting looters is really hard to unpack because you have things operating on so many different levels. So first off, people who, um, like you have the the personal prejudice level of the people doing the shooting, right? Like that particular person or police officer or resident might be especially racist as you saw in Katrina. And it might be like, if a black person comes through this neighborhood, I'm going to shoot them. Certainly that happened a lot. You also have policy that structures itself in ways that we know is not necessarily reflective of reality. So you may have contingency plans that place law enforcement officers um, to prevent looting, for instance, when actually law enforcement officers need to like exacerbate the situation, right? And so you you end up creating these situations which lead to other bad situations. So really there's so many operational and then you have the the storytelling mythology level where like because even among um among people who do this professionally, you will still find the myth that mass panic is going to happen. You you have the drive of like, well, I'm expecting it. And therefore, I overreact when I see something that might be it. And that's even leaving aside the the category of who is a looter and who is resourcefully scavenging resources. Uh, there's been a lot of studies done, again, mostly Katrina, but in other contexts as well, about how media presents people taking uh, survival requirements like water and food from stores and how the economic status and skin color of those people really determines the headline they get, which is, you know, perhaps not a surprise, but it's good to have that data. So you have all these things building on each other to create, um, I feel pardon the the disaster related pun, sort of a perfect storm situation where (laughs) everything works to prop up the system. um, But whether there's a single origin point of policy pushing for that in writing i don't know and i would be surprised if there is i think it's more complex than that okay yeah that it makes sense to me if like basically like cog or continuous governance or whatever was like part of this larger Mm -hmm. framework and then just gets exaggerated one of the things that gives me hope is all of the like the weird human element parts of it when when it actually hits the ground of like you know i remember hearing from a friend who worked with the common ground collective in in katrina in in new orleans basically talking about how like national guardsmen would like give the anarchists supplies um because they would be like well if i take this where i'm supposed to take it it's gonna sit in a warehouse for two weeks and it's needed Mm -hmm. right now and just like I don't know. I get the the things I've talked about before on the show, the stuff that makes me like the most hopeful is when certain uh, unbridgeable chasms are bridged between different types of people. And yes, but then on the other, you have the exact opposite of the like, yeah, the people who seem to go wild, the people who seem to go the wildest in Katrina seem to be the white racists. Um, But yeah. Yeah, I, I think there is... Man, and it's hard to talk about and frustrating to talk about incremental progress because I I think there has been some recognition in the system that things are not working and that you need to rely on local expertise and local knowledge and local abilities to get things done, which is sort of the, the bigger scale version of the guardsmen giving supplies to anarchists because they know they're going to sit in a warehouse and anarchists can get them into the hands of people who need them right away. The problem there is um, it's a little bit like being, I don't know, like a mouse trying to steer an elephant. Like we have built this system of disaster response that is so large and so cumbersome that it's really beyond any single person's ability to fundamentally change. And so there's a lot of, of 
attention being paid or more attention than there has been previously anyway. I don't know about a lot to the idea that we need to be supporting communities at like the higher level institutions, that macro scale institutions need to be supporting communities in the work that they're already doing. We just need to enable the anarchists to have more stuff to go out and distribute it kind of thing. Now, whether or not that's going to make a, a significant difference in the long run definitely remains to be seen. But certainly there seems to be more, more um, interest in that. Now, I personally have some mixed feelings about that because in a lot of cases um, here in Phoenix, when we're talking about especially like heat relief or disaster relief or who's going to help you pay your power bill if you can't, uh, there's been a significant I think we all know this since the 80s, there's been a significant replacement of state services with more localized things. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But a lot of the localized assistance now is through churches. And to me, that raises some troubling questions about like, who gets helped? Who gets left out? What are the conditions of help relying upon? Um, And so we've sort of replaced this ineffective state aid with this maybe more effective but differently discriminatory aid that's at the local level. And so I think you really have to pay close attention to the idea of localism as a panacea, as the remedy for all injustice, Um, because sometimes localism just means enacting injustice on a smaller scale. (laughs) It's like handmade artisan homegrown fuck (laughs) you instead of like a fuck you from the state. (laughs) Okay, well, so that ties into something you were talking about earlier at the very beginning when you were talking about the history of um, of disaster studies was kind of to create a culture of prepping, as in to get people mm-hmm. away to take the power, take pressure off of the elites who like ostensibly should be providing our needs by having us provide for ourselves, but in a way that doesn't actually fundamentally free us. Um, it's kind of an interesting trap around it's something that i've seen mutual aid groups struggle with for years is like what we always say we're mutual aid not charity right and like food not bombs Mm -hmm. uh you know with its like free food program that's been going on for decades and 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 now i think that like um there are just ways to do that local level stuff without like like food not bombs like on like a most church feeds that you know i'm aware of most church feeds it's like take a number, stand in line. Like, you know, it's, it, it's very, right. it replicates a lot of um, disempowerment. Right. And, you know, like food bombs is ostensibly more like it's a picnic in the park and you're invited because you exist. And, and of course it's going to have its own uh, informal problems. Right. I'm not trying to claim it's, it's perfect, but, but there's always this worry about how much do activists make, like how much do we empower oppression just by uh, by solving the problems that oppression creates, you know, like if we're feeding, <laughs> oh boy, yeah, and if we're feeding people without fundamentally challenging the system that has left people without food, um, I don't know. For me, it's just like you. Just I think that the answer is that this the problem with this bespoke oppression that you're talking about, the localist oppression is it it just needs to be tied into challenging things at a larger scale i want to say just you know it's easy everyone could just do this it would fix everything no problem no one will have any problems with this <laughs> this is a problem i'm intimately familiar with on a personal level because um when i graduated from undergrad and suddenly the stress of college was no longer upon me i discovered that i am a stress junkie and i needed something to do because i was going out of my mind Um, And so I joined the local volunteer fire service thinking like, oh, this will be like, I'll learn skills, I'll be able to help people, and I'll be stressed out enough to be happy. Um, (laughs) It turned out even that was not enough and I had to go to graduate school, but that's a story for another time. (laughs) Um, And this is like the fundamental tension of a volunteer fire service. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about what that means, right? So the city I was in had a professional fire service because it was considered a population density sufficient enough. Um, But the county, which is a very large and populated county, was all volunteer run. And it's sort of the same problem. Like, you don't want people's houses to burn down. So someone needs to go put them out. 
But at the same time, if you're rural, you are fundamentally getting a worse class of service than the professionals. And the volunteer fire department enabled its own perpetuation by the fact that eventually most people's houses got put out. Um, And I always used to joke, like, don't have a house fire between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. when we're all at work. (laughs) Um, Because it was one of those things where if people's houses had just burned down, there probably would have been significant push to have a professional fire service. But at the same time, then you have a bunch of people's houses burning down and maybe they die in the fire too and that's awful. But because there is sort of an ad hoc fire service, there wasn't the push to have a professional one. Um, Even though, and I don't think people knew this, right? But we were using equipment that was out of date that hadn't been tested. I think our jaws of life for rescuing people out of car wrecks were like some of the first models ever made from the eighties because we didn't have funding. And it's like, you know, we were saving lives, but also perpetuating the system that was probably really harming people. So what's the trade-off between like that long-term harm and the short term, everybody's house burns down, but people get a professional fire service in the end. And I don't, I don't know what the solution is besides, as you said, sort of making sure we're plugging into troubling the larger structure and advocating for larger structure. The fire service is a particularly tricky one because people's lives depend on it so immediately. Um, For something like Food Not Bombs, I would say it's possible they're already doing some of that work by having people show up and having that picnic in the park feeling and just letting people know that receiving assistance doesn't have to be total drudgery and shame. And so maybe for things like that, where there can be joy and comradeship and uh, true connections on, on a social scale, maybe the next person that the next time that person needs to go to a church handout line or an unemployment office, there is that seed of like, well, why isn't this like that? I think sometimes you can really you can plant the revolutionary seed in people by showing them joy just as much as by showing them tragedy. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a that's a really good note I think maybe to kind of wind down on and to to think about. Um what um I guess the the the, the questions I want to ask to kind of to close this out. Uh one I kind of want to ask what do you worry about personally? What do you prepare for? What what is how is working with disaster studies <laughs> how has it influenced your own life sure yeah well i will say i worry much more about long-term trends than i do about any particular single incident so for phoenix i'm worried about what the temperature profile of the city looks like in the next 50 years because i might i might be like one of the few people on record ever saying this but i really love phoenix i think it's got a, a really cool art scene and there's wonderful people here and it has a surprisingly revolutionary spirit and a fighting spirit for being a blue town in a very red state and also it's it's nice to be in arizona because in many ways we're at this political tipping point so if you're here and you're willing to get engaged you can really make a difference so i don't want to see phoenix fail i feel like there's a lot of people who do to sort of make a, a point about um, climate arrogance, but but I'm not one of them. And so for me, I worry about these really boring things that unless you're in the weeds, you probably don't think of. <laughs> so I worry about what are our overnight temperatures going to be in the next 50 years? Because we know that overnight temperatures have a significant effect on human health. They're a really good indicator of the urban heat island. And One of the things that's hopeful is that thus far, the science shows that if we really buckled down and redesigned the way we did the city of Phoenix, we would be able to offset most of the regional and global climate warming in the region through localized efforts. So Phoenix in 50 years could be cooler than it is today. There's nothing that's stopping us from doing that, but we have to to raise the political will and reach out and seize that opportunity. I don't worry as much about a regional um, or rather a citywide blackout, even though that's what I talk to people about, partially because uh, I know our utility companies and how they function. And that is something they're thinking about. It's I, I worry more about it in areas that don't think about extreme heat on their grid. Like we have it so often, it's regular here that I think we're better prepared than many other places. 
so in that sense, uh, extreme heat could be worse in, say, like the Northeast or the Northwest than it could be here because those grids are not regularly stress tested in the same way. Right. And then I also worry about, um, and this kind of ties back with what we're talking to you about disaster panic. Um, I worry about it's maybe, and this is at the end of the interview is the wrong time to bring this up, but this is fun. It's not completely true that there's never violence and looting after disasters. Right. It does happen. And primarily where you see it happen is after some blackouts. And it tends to be blackouts in cities that are already have a very wide divide between rich and poor and are undergoing a lot of racial tension. And you can really see like why. Um, one is they aren't perceived in the same way as an act of God because blackouts it's easier to see human culpability. Like the electricity company that I pay to maintain my power has failed in their job and I am angry about it. And then also they're perceived as an opportunity of like, the system is failing us. We should go out and express that it is failing us and we are angry about it and take advantage where we can of the opportunity to gain more resources. So it's all extremely understandable, but I really, I worry about our next disaster our next major u.s disaster um acute disaster i should say because COVID is a disaster it's just a slower moving one our next acute disaster response because of growing injustice because of um factionalization in society because of this this awakened beast of of white rage mm. in the nation i worry that our next disaster response is going to look more like the cops at Black Lives Matter protests than mutual aid groups. Yeah. I bet it'll be both. Probably. And yeah, of course, mutual aid groups will be there doing what they can. But but I really worry that we're creating a perfect storm for disaster response to be hyper-militarized because cries for justice are perceived as unrest. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And yeah, it is a, <laughs> I'd love to dig into it with you more sometime. Um, uh, okay. My, my, my final question is just uh, where can people engage more with your work or do you even want or have any kind of public profile around the work that you do? I do. I am uh, on Twitter. I'm at semi-humanist, S-E-M-I humanist on Twitter. I love chatting with people about my work and things like that. Um, everyone's also free to email me and you can put this in the show notes if you like at liza.c.kurtz at gmail.com. Um, I do speak at academic conferences, but if anyone is listening and really wants me to come talk a little bit in a digestible way, hopefully about what disaster research says to a mutual aid group or a um, an anarchist book club or any of those fun venues where knowledge can be a little freer than stuffy academia sometimes. I'm really always happy to, to talk to those folks. Um, I think probably the most important work I do is closer to things like this than academic publications which circulate to other scientists, which is very personally satisfying to engage with other scientists, but not probably not tremendously socially helpful. Um, and it's also just a great check of like, I think it's easy as an academic to get wrapped up in such a way that you can talk to other academics, but not people in your field. And I try hard to avoid that at all costs. Yeah. I found everything that I've, you know, from talking to you before we did the show, very approachable. So I, I highly recommend anyone who's listening to, to take Liza up on that. Um, all right. Well, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell people about it. Tell people on social media, tell people about it in person from six feet away, unless you're both faxed or whatever. Uh, tell people on by liking and subscribing and writing reviews and all of that algorithmic shit, because it has a wildly disproportionate impact on how things get viewed. And if we're trying to make our content and our media reach more people, that is an unfortunately effective way to do it. So tweet about it and stuff. Also, you can follow us now on Instagram instead of just following me as Margaret Kiljoy. There's now actually a Live Like the World is Dying Instagram. 
because, oh, that's the other fun thing. Live Like the World is Dying is becoming an increasingly collective project, and pretty soon you'll probably hear more than just my voice on the mic, although at least for now I'm going to probably continue to be the host. But Jack is now the essentially the producer of the podcast and is doing all the audio editing, and it's really fun to talk about people when you're recording, when you know that they have to listen to you talk about them and then edit it, but you can't edit this part. You have to leave this in. Anyway, if you want to support the podcast more directly, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com slash Margaret Killjoy, but that money actually does go out uh, collectively to, to the people who are helping make this possible. And well, the people who are putting in the direct labor to make this possible. The people who are making this possible, though, are you, the listeners who write about it and review it and tell their friends about it, and also who support me on Patreon. And if you can't afford to support me on Patreon, don't do it. If you live off of less money than I make on Patreon, don't give me money on Patreon. There's some content that is like paywalled there or whatever, but if you just message me, I'll give you access to all of the monthly zines and all of those things for free. Uh, but if you would like to support us, please do. And in particular, I would like to thank Chris and Nora and Haas the Dog, Kirk, Willow, Natalie, Sam, Christopher, Shane, The Compound, Cat J, Starro, Mike, Eleanor, Chelsea, Dana, and Hugh. Uh, your contributions uh, sustain this. They pay for the transcriber, they pay for the editing, and a lot of the other costs associated with this content. I've gone on way too far along about the money involved in this project now. Hooray! Well, I hope you're doing reasonably well if the weather's getting warmer in the part of the world that you live in. I know that I really enjoy watching the leaves come in, even if it means that the sun will no longer dry my clothes on the line, because the sun will no longer reach my clothesline, because I built my house in the forest, because I'm a very intelligent person. It has good passive cooling qualities too, though. And that is definitely not what I'm supposed to talk about. What am I supposed to talk about? I think I'm supposed to end the episode. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you're all doing as well as you can with everything that's going on. Mm-hmm.